Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to this July 2018 episode of Radio Astronomy. I'm Chris, the magazine's editor, and I'm joined in the studio today by staff writer Ian. Hello. And news editor Ezzy. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to Professor Chris Scott about predicting outbursts from the sun and telling you our top stargazing tip for the month. But now we're going to take a look at what's hot in the July edition of the magazine. Ian, what's caught your eye? Um, well, it's been a bit of a... Um, we've had a, kind of two features in this issue that are kind of looking back and to the future of, of NASA, really, because July marks uh, 60 years since uh, President Eisenhower signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act, effectively bringing NASA into mm. being. Mm. Um, um, so, yeah, we've, we've got a feature on, on, on 60 years of NASA, kind of looking back um, at some of the um, some of the highlights, um, written by Libby Jackson, who's a, a space writer who works for the UK Space Agency. Mm. And um, when, when I was kind of talking to her about, about the feature when we were kind of organising it, I mean, we, we both kind of realised that it's actually quite difficult to um to to narrow down all the things that have happened you know mm. at, at NASA over six decades because you immediately think of Apollo Hubble Space Telescope and Space Shuttle and things like that but there are lots of other things that um they've done so much yeah exactly when I mean, you think like Voyager Curiosity Cassini um, New Horizons all the planetary exploration and there's there's so many smaller um things that they've done that people don't even really think about, like all of the the telescopes, things like Spitzer and Wise and things like that, that that were out there doing amazing research, but most people never really appreciated them. Yeah, there was even there was a mission that I came across called Kobe. I don't know if you guys were aware of it. It mm. finished in 1993, but it was. Um, uh, a mission to explore the cosmic microwave background, which is kind of the radiation left over from the the Big Bang, isn't it? Or was that um, before W W Map? I think it was it was the the first one the to data. get one of those, you know, kind of uh, the sort of like elongated oval shapes with the various different colours in that you see mm. that, that you, when you think of the, the oh, um, yes, cosmic yeah. background radiation maps. Yeah, it was the yeah. first one of that. And when you, yeah. it's, I always find it really fascinating if you look at that one where it's really blobby and you can sort of see like there's a patch of blue here and a patch of red here and then you look at the ones that we get now from WMAP. Yeah. 
and it's just you can really see the 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 advancement that NASA yeah. has made in that so time. So much better resolution, isn't yeah. there? On that, yeah. And they've done they do so much, don't they? They do a load of Earth observation as well. There's so many satellites mm. go out there monitoring all aspects of of um, the climate and the ocean and everything like that, which we don't really cover in the magazine because it's not our remit as mm. such. But mm. yeah. They do a lot of stuff, don't they? Yeah, and and kind of more recently, um, I suppose what's kind of making the headlines is, is all the all the exoplanet um, um, oh, discoveries. Yeah, I mean, Kepler has discovered over yeah. two thousand confirmed exoplanets to date, um, and and Spitzer, um, you know, um, Spitzer was the mission that discovered the uh, Trappist one star system with seven Earth-like planets. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's and. Uh, Libby also also speaks uh, in in the feature to uh, Steve J Dick, who's a who was the NASA chief historian um, from 2003 to 2009. So she kind of gets his thoughts on uh, the past, present, and future of NASA. Right. Um, NASA but, is. Do you reckon NASA has has got to be one of the most famous acronyms in the world? I think it has to be. Yeah, because it's slightly better than the than the the body that was NASA before NASA started. Um, NACA. NACA, which is a great acronym, really, isn't it? It's not good, is it? <laughs> it? Which stood for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Yeah. But um, actually, I don't think people uh, acronymized, if that's a word. I don't think this, but they, they didn't create an acronym out of that. It was just NACA. Yeah. 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 Um, but the, the interest, one of the interesting points in the, in the feature is also that, um, you know, a uh, uh, before its inception, there was the idea of making it like like a military um, operation to kind of say, oh, you know, you know, get, get American and Western presence in space because this was obviously kind of uh, during during the Cold War. But it was kind of scientists who said, no, that this should be peaceful and international, and it should be about science. It should be mm-hmm. about discovering things, not about kind of marking our territory. Um, so it's just kind of interesting to hear to hear that aspect, uh, aspect of it as well. Um, and we're also looking to the future of NASA because, of course, uh, next year um, they plan to start um, for the first time in decades, it would be, wouldn't it, um, launching um, American astronauts from American soil. Yeah, it is decades now, isn't it? Because it, mm. well, the last one was in two... Thousand and uh, I want to I want to say eleven was the 11. last was the last shuttle launch. Yes, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, Almost obviously, a decade then. Yeah, wow, so, yeah, since the retirement of the the space shuttle, um, uh, obviously American astronauts have been uh, and European astronauts have uh, booked space on the the Soyuz capsule mm. and rockets to take them to the ISS. And uh, Shawnee Bhattacharya has written us a feature on um, what's going to be happening in the next few years because it's quite exciting. SpaceX and Boeing are going to be taking on the um, the uh, contracts to to fly uh, American astronauts to the to the International Space Station, which I don't know. Like, what, what do you guys think? Because when I was thinking about this, I mean, w- one of the kind of most iconic moments, I suppose, of of the space race was the Apollo-Soyuz docking in 1975. Mm. And it kind of showed that international collaboration between Russian and American astronauts. You know, they kind of, they docked their their capsules and they kind of, you know, had food together and they shook hands and all that kind of stuff and they greeted Mm. each other in their their native tongues. Mm. do you think is there is there a is there a, an argument to be made that we might lose that sense of international cooperation with if the two big space superpowers stick to their own I soil? I don't think so because they still um, the, the they still work on the international space station together, um, mm, and mm. people will still be they'll still have to learn Russian probably. Um, and Russian astronauts will probably still have to learn English. And um, I think there will be a lot of 
back and forth because they do still have to live and work together on the International Space Station for at least the next... I think it's been extended until at least 2024. Yeah. Um, so it's... I hope so as well. And also you have um, potentially uh, with... Uh, another relationship starting up with um, Europe and China um, mm. as uh, the Interne- uh, European Space Agency is getting much more involved with their Tiangong stations. It's very interesting, isn't it? I, mean, I don't think it's... Um, I think you're right, Ezzy, that, you know, the, the, it's the place for international cooperation. Mm. And that's the way to do to do space, isn't it? To do it in a kind of... as a human undertaking rather than as a kind of nationalistic effort. But mm. I think that... Um, NASA's not going to go away, is it? I mean, NASA's, these Boeing and um, SpaceX are still going to be subcontracted by NASA, so they're still going to be, have the kind of umbrella overview of what, of what's, what they're doing and all their activities. Mm. Um, so there won't be a day, day when we have like kind of every single company is, you've got the Amazon space, <laughs> you know, oh, they, Amazon do have one, Jeff Bezos does have blue, is yeah. it? What is it? Blue, uh, Origin. blue Origin. Yeah. Blue Origin. Yeah. Um, so you know they have kind of five or six different different um, launches up there. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So um, that's it for you, Ian. So on, what I've spotted in the magazine this month, which re- I really enjoyed, is um, on July the sixth. It's um, App Helion Day. Yay! Yay. So. <laughs> What does that mean? Helion <laughs> Day is um, the day when uh, planet Earth is um, furthest from the sun, mm-hmm. which is mm. which is slightly um, strange because it's you know it's summer, it's it's hot um, here at least here in the northern hemisphere, mm. but actually it's when we're when the Earth is furthest in its orbit mm. um, from the sun, and it's uh, it's about five million kilometers further away than it is at perihelion, which is the closest. So. You know, it's a nice day to mark. This doesn't actually mean it's going to make much difference at all. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're if you're in solar observing, um, the dif- the difference between furthest and nearest in a t- in a telescope is about just over one arc minute, <laughs> which is about one sixtieth of your little <laughs> finger held out at arms at arm's length. So that's you know, not a lot. A little it's finger. Not a lot. It's not a lot at all. Um, but uh, it's a nice thing to. To have around and um, maybe get printed on a T-shirt, <laughs> <laughs> and it is the sort of thing. I mean, you know, you you, you could kind of uh, take it, take an image of the sun and then wait for half a year and then take another image and then compare them to see if you can actually notice any difference. Yes. You know, yeah, that's, that's, that's a cool the kind idea. Of thing yeah. Yeah. If anybody really does good. do that, we'd love to yeah. see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely, um, definitely. I always think it's weird because usually if Aphelion, when when you have a planet or whatever, it's Aphelion, you can't see it. It's on the other side of the sun. It's too far yes. away. Um, so I quite like the idea that, that, that this is the one Aphelion that we can actually yeah, see. Yeah, that's true. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, there's lots of detail you can see on the sun, um, with, you know, safely, of course, mm. with a properly filtered telescope. Um, and we cover that in the in the magazine this month as well. All the things that you can see in with white light, mm. um, with a white light filter, which is stuff like sunspots and, and the granulation on the surface mm. of the sun, which always gives me 
makes me feel slightly it, it, it slightly unnerves me slightly yeah I, I, whenever I see these kind of pictures of the surface of some of all these huge convection cells kind of mm. bubbling up to the surface yeah. it's like a kind of giant pot of of <laughs> lava or, or bubbling bubbling stew and I think that's horrible and he, when you realise each one of those is probably about the size of size of our planet it's like, yeah oh life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It's it's one of those things that when you sort of work out, it's like, oh, they look quite like small and dainty and fiddly. And then you actually work out how big they are. And it's like, we are tiny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, speaking of which, we, we should... Uh, Get out for some solar observing. I haven't done that in a while. Mm. No, we could get the, um, the the hydrogen our hydrogen alpha telescope out. Should yeah. we take it out mm. to the park on a nice sunny day? A bit of lunchtime observing. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you you were saying um, during when we were producing the the um, the issue that it was uh, one of the things you spotted in the issue was about the dynamic nature of the sun. Um, yes. So uh, uh, this feature, uh, this issue, I was writing about the Parker Solar Telescope, um, which is going to be an amazing mission that's going to go and uh, touch the sun, they say. Um, it's going to actually fly through the sun's corona, which is the first time that we've actually managed to do that. Um, so it's an amazing feat. It's going to get within um, 6.3 million kilometres of the sun. Um, that, that admittedly doesn't sound very close, but that's within four and a half times the solar diameter. Hmm. And when you consider how hot this thing is, it's having to sort of really beef itself up to be able to stand, withstand that environment. So hopefully we should learn quite a lot from that over the next few years. I mean, it's a good opportunity to, to study a star, really, I yeah. suppose, isn't it? It's kind of our, mm. our best opportunity of doing it. But the thing I just can't get my head around is, is actually that we have the technology to build something that can... That can withstand that that heat. It's taken sixty years. It was um, um I was talking to Nikki Fox, who was the project scientist of the Parker Solar Telescope, and she was telling me that uh, back when NASA first started, they came up with I think it was about twelve or fourteen missions that they wanted to do, and this was in back in like nineteen seventy, um, and. The Parker Solar Probe is the last one to be done because oh it's taken this long for them to get the technology together to be able to withstand the, the extreme conditions. So are there, are there like loads of kind of frazzled space, spacecraft all taking the sun out there? <laughs> there's there's the a couple charge. that they've sent, but they've uh, the ones that they've gone before have either been like taking quite a few steps back mm. um, or, yeah, it's... Yeah, they've they've been they've viewed from afar basically. Um, but the thing yeah. I also found really funny about the Parker's Hope is that actually the heat is pretty easy to deal with. Um, you put a heat shield on the front, and as mm. provided that can stand, it's fine. Um, the problem's actually the cold because mm. uh, it has to swing out to the orbit of um, Venus. Um, it kind of flybys the sun and go, goes out to the orbit of Venus. And when it's out there, it gets really, really cold. So they've had to put, mm. like, heat blankets and heaters to prevent it from freezing up, which I thought was just such an odd idea. That's weird. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. The, the, the actual journey it's going to make is, is incredible as well because, mm. obviously, you, you can't just apply the brakes as soon, yeah. as, you, as, soon as you get to the yeah. sun. So they have yeah. to actually... Is it, like, flybys of Venus to use the, the yeah. orbit? Yeah, it will uh, use a, a gravitational slingshot around um, Venus seven times. Yeah. Um, mm. Usually when people 
do that it's to get more speed but actually mm. in this time it's it's kind of to it's to lose the speed that you get f- from the earth basically because it's going to be the fastest when it launches it's going to be the fastest it's thing, yeah it? i i knew it was going to be fastest i didn't quite appreciate the difference it's um the yeah. first one the the i think it was juno had to go uh, around um 140,000 kilometers per hour yeah. to get to Jupiter. This is going to have to go at 690,000 <laughs> kilometers per hour. So it's not just uh, smashed the uh, record, it's yeah. like tripled it. Off the scale. Wow, that's um, amazing. Yeah, yeah, but I think this one's much lighter. Wow, hey. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's quite incredible. Um, and it will also teach us uh, a lot about uh, not just just the, one of the reasons why we're going is because we're trying to learn a lot more about the dynamic nature of the sun, as you said. So learn how the activity works on it um, and why it produces these these massive solar flares. Mm, um, mm. And it's these solar flares that, that can occasionally um, interact with Earth and be quite dangerous. Um, mm, and I think, yes. Ian, you are finding out a bit more about that. Yeah, that brings me nicely onto this episode's uh, interview. I spoke to uh, Professor Chris Scott, who's a space and atmospheric physicist from the University of Reading, um, talking to him basically about the the dynamic activity of the sun, coronal mass ejections, and the effect and the dangers that, that it can have um, for life on Earth. Um, so yeah, I, I spoke to him this week, and I started off by asking him if he could explain exactly what space weather is. What is space weather? Well, that's a, that's a, a matter of opinion, really. Uh, in, in broad terms, it's how the sun and solar activity affect the Earth's space environment. But some people catch it in terms of how it will affect Earth's technology. So we've got an ever-increasing fleet of spacecraft. We've got power grids on the ground. We've got uh, navigational satellites, etc. And what we're most concerned about is how solar activity is going to affect the technologies that we rely on. Mm-hmm. So, just how dangerous is is the sun? I mean, what what sort of effect does it have on on um, on society on Earth? Uh, well, the average person on the ground is unlikely to be aware of any direct effect because the most dangerous thing about the sun, as far as life is concerned, is the extreme ultraviolet and X rays that it emits, and these are very energetic. Um, uh, wavelengths of light that that if we were exposed to them would would cause us great harm. But we are lucky that we've got a big thick atmosphere above us on our planet, and so um, the upper atmosphere absorbs all these uh, horrible uh, gases, and that's what forms the the Earth's ionosphere, um, which is the, these these uh, this the electrical layers at the, at the top of our atmosphere. Um, so the our atmosphere is protecting us from the the most direct um, impacts, but. And the sun is also a variable star. It's not just sitting benignly in space shining at us. Um, it does have an activity cycle of about 11 years. And throughout that cycle, it throws out uh, huge eruptions known as coronal mass ejections, um, which is a dull name for something that's really quite astonishing. They're about a billion tonnes of material travelling at a million miles an hour. And forecasting when they're going to occur and what direction they're going in is, is one of the challenges that we're facing uh, in uh, understanding space weather. If one of these arrives at our planet, um, uh, if the magnetic field contained within that cloud is, is in the opposite direction of, of our Earth's magnetic field, the two fields can merge. And that allows all kinds of electrical and energetic effects to occur. Um, so energetic particles fall into our atmosphere, and that causes the aurora at the north and south poles. Again, that's extremely high up. The lowest part of the aurora is about 100 kilometres, and that's the altitude you need to get to to be declared an astronaut. So we're still talking on the edge of space as far as that's concerned. But it causes currents to flow in the atmosphere, and those currents can induce currents to flow through rocks on the ground. And if those excess currents get into our power grids, they can cause surges of power that... 
uh, the power grids weren't designed to carry. And, and that has in the past caused uh, issues such as in 1989, there was a, a, a storm that um, caused excess currents to flow through the grid in Canada and it burned out some uh, transformers there um, in the middle of October, I think, for, for a number of hours. And that, you know, Canada is not a place you want to be without, without power at that time of year. So um, our power companies are doing a lot to try and understand the, the excesses of space weather so that they can um, protect themselves. And of course, in space, we have uh, an ever-increasing fleet of spacecraft. And so engineers need to know what are the extremes of the space environment. They need to design their spacecraft to, to uh, survive in. Um, and, yeah, again, excess uh, um, currents flowing, static charge building up on spacecraft or energetic particles zapping through the electronics is, is something that uh, as we get better and better at miniaturizing our electronics, um, these spacecraft are potentially getting more and more vulnerable. And we need to understand that. A sort of spacecraft like Sputnik, which should have been full of valves, would barely have noticed a solar storm, I imagine. But the sort of modern spacecraft we have now, where all the electronics is on, is on miniaturized on circuit boards, um, we need to understand the, the, the effects of space weather so that we can make sure that those uh, work reliably. Yes, I mean, it's, it's something that, that kind of springs to mind when you think about the uh, Parker Solar Probe, which is going to actually um, study the sun up close. I mean, it's difficult to get your head around how we can actually create something that would be able to withstand the heat of the sun at that at that at such a close distance. I know, and I I worked on the, the Stereo mission, which um, was a, a mission that looked between the sun and the Earth to look for these uh, solar storms as they head towards us, and that's in an Earth-like orbit. And the amount of effort that you have to go into to make sure that the electronics are working at a, a reasonable temperature is, is quite astonishing. There's lots of computer modelling and thermal modelling and all kinds of things. So I have, I've not been party to the calculations required to get the solar probe as close as it's going to the sun, but it's going to have a big shield at the front to try and protect the instrumentation. And the instrumentation is basically going to have to peek around it. And uh, uh, yeah, it, it's a, an incredible feat of engineering. It's really exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing the results back. Yes. And just to go back to the uh, coronal mass ejections that you, that you mentioned, uh, this is a term that uh, kind of anyone who's interested in solar astronomy um, at, at, at to any degree, will have will have heard of. I was wondering if you could just explain what, what's the science behind these uh, CMEs. What, what's actually going on at the surface of the sun? Yeah, well, it's it's really interesting because the sun is a fluid. It's it's a magnetized. It's a fluid that's incredibly hot, so uh, that electrifies the the particles within it. And that as that fluid churns around, it generates its own magnetic field, like the magnetic field is generated in the Earth's core. But uh, the sun rotates. It's not a static body. It rotates um, roughly around once every 27 days. Um, but the equator of the sun rotates faster than the poles. So the poles take around 30 days to rotate. The equator goes around once every 25 days. So if you can imagine a sort of a, 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 a the sort of classic dipole field where you have a north pole and a south pole and you have field lines threading from one to the other, as this differential rotation um, moves the equator faster than the poles, it gradually stretches that magnetic field with it and gradually wraps that magnetic field around and around the sun. Uh, and when you stretch or distort a magnetic field on that, you're storing energy in it. And the, the analogy I like to use is 
If you have a little model aircraft that's powered by a rubber band and you wind the propeller as much as you can, you can see the, the, um, the elastic band getting more and more twisted and contorted as you're storing the energy in it. And if you're a belligerent child like I was, you keep going as fast as you possibly can to see how much you can twist this elastic band. And it starts to knot and twist and, and get very, very complicated in, in its shape. And that's what happens to the sun's magnetic field. It gradually gets more and more complicated and knots and form in it, and those break out through the surface. And where you have these intense regions of magnetic field, um, it actually prevents the material from, from rising up from the, the, the solar interior. There's a sort of convection, like, like rice on the boil going on over the whole of the sun as the heat is gradually transmitted to the surface. But where you have these intense magnetic fields, it suppresses that, and so they appear cooler. And so to our eyes, if you were looking, obviously, with, with the correct filters and, or, or projecting an image of the sun, you'd see these regions as dark spots, and that's... That's the, what we call a sunspot. And so these sunspots change throughout the solar cycle. You get more and more of them as this magnetic field wraps up and, and uh, becomes distorted. But then what happens is you have these eruptions um, as the magnetic field reconfigures itself and it releases um, giant bubbles of material from the solar atmosphere carrying um, the magnetic field with it. And that gradually, throughout the course of the cycle, reconfigures the, the, the magnetic field of the sun until the, the, the south pole's at the top and the north pole's at the bottom. And then, of course, the continual motion of the sun gradually unwinds that field until you're back to the initial condition again. So while the activity cycle on the sun takes uh, 11 years, approximately, the magnetic cycle takes 22 years because it takes two of those activity cycles to get back to a north pole at the top. So uh, we tend to get these mass ejections occurring uh, more often at when the sun's at, at its peak activity, when you see more spots, when you have many more of these active regions, these very complicated struct magnetic structures. And when the sun's uh, at its solar minimum years, you see fewer spots and you tend to get fewer mass ejections, although you still get, that, you still get them. And that's, that really is quite um, an, an interesting result. Um, but they tend to be less severe. Just how reliable is this um, uh, cycle that, of, of activity that the sun goes through? Um, are, are we actually able to kind of uh, predict things like CMEs and um, d does it kind of follow a, a fairly strict pattern? Uh, that's the that's the million dollar question. Um, no is the short answer. Um, the cycles can vary in length, so they can be slightly longer than eleven years. They can be slightly shorter, and there's been many an attempt to try and predict the next activity cycle based on the previous ones. And so, <clears throat> lots of different techniques. When I was at, an undergraduate at university, one of our lecturers had just um, achieved some kind of positive notoriety by pre pre correctly predicting the, the peak activity of the, the cycle that we were seeing. And so everyone was thinking that perhaps their technique was the, the one that we should be going with. But <clears throat> of course, it's a great thing to make a prediction over 11 years, because if you do it mid-career, you're usually retired by the time <laughs> you'll prove right or wrong again. <laughs> um, and that, um, that unfortunately proved to be the case with this prediction. So it is very difficult. And the sun recently has just gone extremely quiet. In 2007, around then, that the sun went completely quiet. There were very few sunspots and there was a big stretch where there were no sunspots at all. The solar wind just dropped to, to a very low, well, relatively low speed. It's still traveling at about 400 kilometers a second. But uh, again, it was, and the, and the solar wind was very thin. And so the, the conditions at, at Earth were a lot um, calmer as far as the, the solar weather was concerned than they had been previously. And so we know that the sun does vary 
on longer cycles as well. We can see some evidence of this within the geological record on Earth with all the uh, isotopes that are generated by um, energetic particles in space interacting with our atmosphere. But we don't have enough observations yet to actually tie down what those are. And so it could be that the sun is going into a period um, of much quieter activity, which sounds great. But under those conditions, the sun's magnetic field is in space is weaker. And that field actually protects us from very energetic particles called galactic cosmic rays that are accelerated in distant uh, supernova explosions. So... There's no good time to be in space. You're either being uh, irradiated by the solar particles that are being accelerated in the solar wind, or you're being irradiated by galactic cosmic rays. <laughs> it's not much of a choice, is it? Um, <laughs> if uh, someone has been listening uh, to this, this interview and, and has been inspired and wants to know more about the sun, um, I thought it'd be a good uh, time to bring up the uh, Solar Stormwatch Citizen Science Project that I believe you're involved in. I was wondering if you could, if you could tell us about that. Yeah, well, Solar Stormwatch was born out of the fact that when I was working with the stereo mission, we were getting many hundreds of thousands of images in from the spacecraft, and uh, we only had a very small team to, to observe them. And so as a science team, we could pick out the events that we wanted to study in detail, but there was just too much data. And in talking with uh, Chris, Chris Lintot and his team at the, the University of Oxford that were developing this Zooniverse idea of, of asking people to help you with your science, and uh, together with the um, Royal Observatory at Greenwich, we put together a project called Solar Stormwatch, which um, we asked people to look at the images and to tell us what they saw in them and to help track uh, features that we saw. And that was incredibly successful. We've, we had something like 20,000 volunteers from around the world who helped us, and we got seven scientific papers out of it. So it's not just asking people to, to, to do something for no purpose. We're actually using this for the science. There's just more than we can possibly do. Um, and we've relaunched Solar Stormwatch recently, to get people to actually look at these storms in our cameras and to draw around the edge of them. And that might seem like a really <laughs> prosaic thing to do, but these are very fluffy clouds in space. And de deciding where the edge of these storms is is a subjective um, judgment. Mm. And so one scientist can say, well, I think it's here, but we have no idea any more than the next man so getting pe many people to look at the same image and to tell us where they think the edge is we can get some consensus and so that consensus is very useful because it tells us not only where the edge is but it also tells us how uncertain people think that edge is and so we can compare very clean cmes that have got a very well defined edge and some that are a lot fainter and we can get people to to compare between them <clears throat> And then um, most recently, uh, we've launched another project, which if you go to, if you want to look at the Solar Stormwatch project and help us with that, we're very grateful. That's www.solarstormwatch.com. Um, but if you go to the Zooniverse platform, which is zooniverse.org, uh, you can see that uh, there's another project there called uh, Help Save Planet Earth from Solar Storms. Uh, and that's a, a project which we're um, looking at this, these storms uh, to, in conjunction with the Science Museum, we have a major new uh, exhibit coming up on the sun uh, this autumn. And uh, so they wanted to have some citizen science element to it. And we're asking people that. We're showing them one picture from every storm that we've seen in the stereo cameras and asking people to compare them and tell us which one they think looks the most complicated. We're trying to get some kind of ranking order for the complexity of these storms and seeing if that tells us something about... Uh, the, whether the, the actual nature of the storm varies throughout the cycle and which ones are going to be more um, impactful when they arrive at Earth. 
That's absolutely fascinating, and so, so there's there's clearly plenty for uh, people to get involved with um, if if they're if they want to know more, or if they're interested, or if they want to get uh, get involved in, in in actual scientific studies. Absolutely, I didn't I didn't sound too needy, did I? <laughs> <laughs> but, but we really are desperate for people's help. Uh, there's there's so much data, and uh, the more people looking at it, the more we'll find out from it. And, and presumably, this is something that you don't need any kind of experience of solar astronomy or, or knowledge, uh, you know, a scientific uh, degree or anything to to help out with. Oh, absolutely. In fact, if you come at the data with no preconceptions, I think that's an advantage. Um, we give you a, a little brief tutorial to explain what you're looking at and the sorts of features that we're interested in, in identifying. And then it's for you to tell us what you think you think you're seeing. And uh, I think that's really important. Um, it's, it's very easy for one uh, expert to uh, just proclaim what they think the edge is, but I, that's not as valuable as many people looking at it and agreeing or, or disagreeing as to where they think the edge is. Fantastic. Okay. Well, um, uh, Professor Scott, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Um, it's been brilliant, and um, hopefully people will, will get involved in, in the, these various projects. It's been great talking with you. That was Professor Chris Scott. Find out more about space weather and solar outbursts in July's issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. There's a load to see in the night sky this month, which you can find out all about in our guide to the night sky in this month's issue. But if there's one thing you really should see in July, it's the total eclipse of the moon. This is later in the month, on the 27th of July. Now, a total eclipse of the moon is when the moon passes through the Earth's shadow. If you kind of picture them in a line, you've got the moon, the Earth and the sun with the Earth in the middle. And because the light from the sun is in effect filtering through Earth's atmosphere before it reaches the moon, the moon appears blood red at fullest eclipse. And here in the UK, the eclipse will already have started by the time the moon rises in the southeast on the 27th, which is about 10 past nine in the evening. So what we'll see here is this blood red moon rising up from the horizon. Now the sky will still be light at this point, so it might be a bit tricky to spot. The full eclipse, the red part, finishes about 10 past 10, so against a darker sky, but for two hours after that, the moon will still look darker than usual as it moves out of partial eclipse. Now, there's two other important things to say about this. Firstly, it's all kicking off on the same day that planet Mars reaches opposition when it's highest and brightest in the sky for several years. And it's going to be a perihelic opposition, so it's closer to Earth in its orbit and brighter than at any time in the last 15 years. Pretty amazing. Mars rises just under the eclipsed moon, so from about 10 past 10 on the 27th, there'll be an awesome view, low to the southeastern horizon, of a red moon and a red planet below it. It's pretty special. The second thing is that July the 27th is a Friday. So, find a pub with a garden or get to a park nearby with a family. Rarely has a celestial event been this well-timed. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about space weather and solar outbursts in the July issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we also review a Dobsonian scope, a short tube refractor scope and a specialist astrophoto camera, check in on progress with US plans for crewed commercial space flights, preview next year's South American eclipse, and have a total of 99 top observing and imaging targets to take a look at in the night sky. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. 
For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.